You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And today I'm joined by Vipin Narang, an associate professor of security studies at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Vipin specializes in nuclear weapons and strategy, and he's the author of Nuclear Strategy in the Modern Era, Regional Powers and International Conflict. How's it going today, Vipin? Thanks for joining me. Great. Thanks, Ankit. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great we can finally do this. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been long overdue to have you on the podcast. We actually talked about um, something that you said recently, as a lot of people did, obviously, in the context of South Asia. Um, for listeners that are curious about that, just go back a few episodes. We talked about Vipin's um, presentation at a recent Carnegie conference that spurred quite a bit of debate on India's potential shifts to uh, preemption or counterforce under no first use nuclear doctrine. So um, yeah, but that's not what we're doing today, Vipin. Thank God. Yeah, no. I've, uh, let's let's talk about something uh, just as fun. North Korea, right? Exactly. So we are yeah. going to do North Korea today, and this is actually a, the second episode back to back on North Korea. But man, it is the gift that keeps on giving. It really is. There's just so much to talk about, um, especially after this April fifteenth parade where they kind of gave away the whole show. Um, I mean, so Vipin, you know, you you were. You know, you were looking at these images that were coming out of this parade. I mean, to me, it looked like this was a new nuclear power showing off basically its entire nuclear forces. They were saying, here is what we have. And the message from what we saw seemed to me, you know, it's, it seems like it's getting clearer and clearer that there is a strategy to everything that North Korea is showing off with its forces. What was your impression when you saw those images coming Absolutely. out? Absolutely. The parade showed what they have and what where they want to go. And... Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know we we tended to treat North Korea and Kim Jong Un as a kind of a joke, but when you look at the capabilities that they're pursuing, there was a very sophisticated nuclear strategy that seems to be emerging in uh, the types of capabilities they're developing to hold particular targets at risk. Uh, sometimes regional powers like North Korea don't have a choice in how they sequence them, uh, but we can see with the development of the short range, the medium range, and then at least a signal and intent to develop ICBMs to hold the U.S. homeland at risk, there is a very clear strategy right. about how they think they would sequence a conflict and what targets they would hold at risk. And that flows from a very sophisticated understanding of uh, deterrence theory. You know, deterrence theory is not particularly complicated, and uh, it seems like Kim Jong-un has very k- keenly figured out, the North Koreans have figured out what they need to develop in order to have I mean, there seems to be an emerging theory of victory. Right. Uh, and uh, I think that's the big distinction over the past couple of years. Uh, I actually, so in my book, uh, I didn't do a North Korea case because it was, by the, when I was writing my dissertation, North Korea really didn't have a nuclear strategy to speak of. Nobody really knew anything about North Korea. And then I wrote this article in 2013, which came out in 2014, on North Korean nuclear strategy. And we were, it's interesting because I go back to the article and it's, they're at an inflection point about what type of nuclear strategy they could develop. Mm-hmm. And at the time, with Kim Jong-un taking power, there hadn't been – remember, Kim Jong-il dies in end of 2011, right? December 2011. Yeah, end of 2011. And then there's a hiatus in the tests. You know, there's kind of – there isn't like a huge ramp up in the testing sequence, uh, either nuclear or missile, uh, in the first couple years of Kim Jong-un's leadership. And so – you know, you're sitting there thinking about what nuclear strategy North Korea might adopt, and you think there might be continuity because Kim Jong Il was very close with the Chinese. Right. And uh, you know, in, in my typology of nuclear strategies, I thought, look, if you're North Korea and Kim Jong Un, you're young, 
you have this client, you have this patron in China. Yeah. You know, okay, cool. Let's actually, uh, so let's actually take a step back because I know where you're going. This is fantastic. Actually, everything you just said, we're going to, we're going to hit in more detail on this episode. Um, so yeah, so, you know, just to take a step back, Vipin. Um, so yeah, your book, you know, you looked at the second nuclear age, the newer nuclear powers, the older nuclear powers after the Cold War, how they've changed their nuclear forces, how that affects international conflict stability and uh, deterrence calculations. And obviously, you know, North Korea was kind of this tricky case for you. So, you know, a good place for you to start maybe for our readers who um, are unfamiliar with your book is just to kind of go through your theory of the of the three primary, you know, nuclear strategy typologies and just kind of yeah, tell absolutely. us where you thought yeah. North Korea might right, have right. been. So, and there's no reason anyone would have read my book. It's a great cure for insomnia for anyone who uh, needs it. Um, the, the three basic strategies for regional powers uh, are one is this idea of the catalytic strategy. Now, it's not in the Cold War catalytic war uh, terminology, but there's a there are, there's an option available to regional powers who operate below the superpowers to use nuclear weapons to kind of compel a superpower patron like the United States or in potentially the North Korean case like the Chinese uh, to come to their assistance to prevent breakout because you know the United States was always allergic to uh, states uh, openly declaring nuclear weapons uh, and testing and uh, becoming overt powers. So this is exactly what the Israelis adopted early on in their program. Abner Cohen has done great work on this. Um, the South Africans explicitly called their strategy a catalytic strategy to catalyze American assistance, conventional assistance in the event that they faced uh, a threat from the Soviets. And the Pakistanis did this in the 1980s when the U.S. Uh, was its patron because of the Afghan war. Um, the second strategy is kind of what, you know, the China-India model. You have conventional superiority uh, or buffered against major conventional threats against you. Uh, and you really only need to rely on nuclear weapons to deter nuclear coercion or use against you. Um, and you can have a relaxed, no first use posture, for example, uh, if you have an assured retaliation strategy. Uh, the third is, you know, in, in, uh, in theory is this uh, more aggressive, uh, what I call asymmetric escalation strategy, where you're facing a potentially superior conventional existential threat to your existence, and you need nuclear weapons to offset the conventional imbalance. Uh, and I use the phrase asymmetric escalation rather than say first use because the idea is explicitly to deter or defeat a conventional invasion through the use of nuclear escalation and nuclear escalation strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Pakistanis now clearly have an asymmetric escalation strategy. Right. Uh, and I think North Korea is is obviously heading in that direction now. Yeah. So that's, so, so, you know, I mean, the next question I have for you is that, look, like in in hindsight, you know, we've seen this parade and right now it seems really clear that they're gunning for an asymmetric escalation strategy. But, you know, I mean, you, you were talking about this a bit, but I, I just kind of want you to, you know, go into a little bit more yeah, detail about clear. why you use, yeah, you know, why you had this kind of ambiguity between it them being possibly I, catalytic. If you look at the, if you look at Kim Jong-il and his relationship with China seemed to be a lot closer uh, Jonathan Pollack, Josh Pollack's father, wrote a great book, uh, No Exit, which talked about the relationship between North Korea and China, which was very much a client-patron relationship with Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il. Uh, and in, in the late 2010s, when, you know, or 2000s, early 2010s, uh, when I was writing, my, writing the book and wrestling through North Korea, it really seemed like the optimal strategy for North Korea was, look, an, an overt nuclear strategy you know, when you have small forces and your adversary is the United States, almost seems suicidal. So the rational strategy is if you think that China is going to be a reliable patron is, you know, kind of use the threat of breakout to get the Chinese to at least backstop you in diplomatic talks. Uh, and you can 
you can use the program uh, and the capabilities as kind of a bargaining chip against against the U.S. to get what you need politically and diplomatically. And that's where you know you kind of thought uh, the North Koreans uh, were heading because structurally, if if they believed that China was not a reliable patron, or if China stopped being a reliable patron, then North Korea finds itself in the structural position of Pakistan. It faces a, a very clearly overt. Uh, conventional superior force with Iraq and the United States uh, with a stated existence of reunification, which would be extinguishing the state. So the alternative was you, asymmetric escalation, right? You, would, you had uh, really no option for a purely assured retaliation strategy because your primary threat wasn't nuclear, it was conventional. Mm -hmm. And so given those alternatives, I thought, okay, well, North Korea doesn't have the, the space and the, the freedom necessarily to develop an asymmetric escalation strategy and capabilities without possibly China freaking out or the United States freaking out and bombing it. Uh, but here we are. And uh, I think, we, you know, the, this uncertainty in 2012 and 2013 about Kim Jong-un's relationship with China has been clarified. It's very clear that he's trying to distance himself from China. There's a lot of tension between uh, Beijing and Pyongyang now when, you know, Kim Jong-un killed Kim Jong-nam who is China's designated heir, that was clearly a big uh, thumb in the nose of the Chinese. Uh, and he was basically like, there goes your succession plan if you get rid of me, so you don't have an alternative. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, December 2013, killing uh, Jiang Songtek, his uncle, who was kind exactly of the right. big go-between as well. That was exactly. a big sign. Exactly. And so uh, there's, a, there's a significant distancing between Pyongyang and Beijing. And I think it, it seems like it's emerging from Pyongyang. It's not coming from Beijing. So it's not... The, the the loss of China, as in China's not abdicating, it's really uh, Kim Jong-un trying to assert his independence. And maybe that's for domestic political reasons. We don't, it's a black box. Yeah. But that really eliminates the catalytic strategy as an option. And so this in this Washington Quarterly article, I said, eh, you know, ideally we would get Beijing to keep doing this. Uh, we ne I don't think I ever countenanced the idea that it would be Kim Jong-un who tries to distance himself from Beijing. It seems like actually not a particularly smart strategy diplomatically, but if he does that, then the only nuclear strategy avail available to him is this asymmetric escalation. Yeah. Well, right. you know, I mean, the Chinese have also um, just recently in the past few months kind of changed their tack because, you know, for the longest time they were just saying, let's return to multilateral talks, the six-party talks, and just kind of, you know, return to the table on denuclearization. And now actually, you know, the Chinese foreign minister has repeatedly kind of made this quid pro quo offer where North Korea would freeze its testing for yep. the cessation of conventional U.S.-South Korea exercises. So, I mean, yep. I, I think that shows that whatever North Korea has been doing for the past few years is starting to, you know, shift Beijing's calculus in a way where it's feeling more comfortable making these demands publicly I mean, obviously yeah, the u.s rk would never go for that but um you know just for a freeze but but it's uh it's certainly interesting um all right you want to move to the parade and talk about some of these uh yeah, fancy no, new I mean, systems uh, we saw it, in a lot of ways as you said in uh you know your article in the in the diplomat was by far the uh the most insightful on the parade i mean that is a lot of in a lot of ways a lot scarier than a sixth nuclear test right drawing the line at right you've done five nuclear tests a sixth one doesn't really change much but the unveiling of the solid fuel long-range capabilities or whatever was in the canisters, if nothing else, is a signal about where they wanted to go. Plus, you know, the the uh, Musadans and the Polarises and the, I mean, it was a whole suite of short-range and medium-range ballistic missiles with a signal for uh, developing long-range ICBMs. Uh, perhaps a long-range SLBM down the future. Right. Uh, and, you know, we've seen the maps over the years uh, with 
you know, the regional counter soft counterforce targets that the North Koreans seem to You want to tell to our be. listeners what soft counterforce means? So, uh, you know, the in a lot of ways, North Korea's artillery, long-range artillery, can do a lot of damage in the DMZ zone out to Seoul. But if you're trying to slow down the flow of American forces and the support of American operations, joint American rock operations, presumably, uh, the command and control centers and, you know, the bases in Busan and in... Uh, and in Japan would be the way to 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 slow the flow of forces, uh, and you hold at risk then American regional bases and targets, uh, and you can do a lot of damage conventionally with the artillery, uh, but you may not have the conventional reach to hit and significantly degrade uh, the U.S. ability to support conventional operations unless you use nuclear weapons potentially on. Uh, regional, we call them soft counterforce targets, but the bases effectively and command and control infrastructure uh, through which would support all of our operations. Right. Uh, so that's that's your regional strategy. Uh, now the problem is you're facing a much more superior conventional and nuclear force in the United States. So how do you deter American nuclear retaliation, which would basically end the state of North Korea? Well, the U.S. gets really cagey if you can start holding homeland targets at risk. And this would this would give the U.S. presumably, if you're North Korea, you'd say, okay, if I can hold the U.S. homeland at risk with the ICBMs, I'm not going to use the ICBMs or the long range if I ever develop them, long range SLBMs, uh, in a first use mode against U.S. homeland because that would obviously invite complete retaliation. But your theory of victory is, I need to prevent the U.S. and ROC from invading and extinguishing my state conventionally. I need to, I have my conventional artillery for the theater and then. I need to be able to degrade their ability to fight through that effectively, and so I develop regional nuclear forces. That's only a war terminating and you know strategy in your theory of victory if you can deter American nuclear retaliation against you. And the way to do that is to hold the U.S. homeland and U.S. homeland targets at risk. Right. Uh, and so this idea—it's really mimicking the Pakistani strategy, and we've had a lot of evidence of technical cooperation between Pakistan and North Korea over the years, there's there's clearly some doctrinal mimicking too, minus two features. I'd say there are two big differences. One, we still haven't seen North Korea develop Nasser equivalents. Uh, and the Nasser I, is? The, sorry, the Nasser is the <laughs> the Pakistani battlefield nuclear capability, a 60-kilometer MRLS that it threatens to use on Indian forces, uh, probably on Pakistani territory. Right. And that's, you know, that seems to be like a technical limitation. I mean, miniaturizing exactly. is something I, so that North Koreans aren't very good at yet. Open the possibility, and I would expect the North Koreans to develop that, because if the same strategy as the Pakistanis, it is, uh, that is kind of where they would want to head. And so I, I leave open the possibility that they'll develop a lower end option uh, below the SCUDs. I, I think the SCUDs are probably the shortest range. Well, they have the TOXA, which is uh, highly accurate. Uh, short-range system, the can yeah. Yes, well, you can. Yeah, but it's not. Um, but it's not thought to be nuclear capable, so they'd have to yeah, so make you, some you want shorter-range nuclear capable yeah. systems. Um, certainly, I think they would go. They 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 would have an incentive to go shorter than they already do. Mm -hmm. The challenge that the North Koreans face that the Pakistanis didn't is the Pakistanis had to be able to only hold uh, the Indian homeland at risk with the third with their so-called third strike right. after the third use. And India India obviously is a bordering state. So the technical challenges uh, in developing a ranged missile that can do that aren't as hard for the Pakistanis. So the North Koreans have a greater challenge uh, because they have to develop true ICBMs to hold the U.S. homeland at risk. And so the North Korean challenge right now, I think, is at the 
is at the higher end with the ICBMs and at the very low end, I still think that there, there's probably some interest and I wouldn't be surprised if they develop, you know, these uh, much shorter range nuclear capable um, ballistic missiles like the Nasser. No, absolutely. So, and I think that was the story they were telling us old. on April 15th. Um, yep. And, you know, I mean, um, part of me also, you know, there's a degree of frustration in the focus on ICBMs and the debate on North Korea and the U.S., certainly the policy debate. I mean, um, people don't really realize that these more reliable, well-tested, short-range, medium-range systems are their first strike weapons. It's um, it's clearly, you know, what they're um, telling us. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, like, you know, we saw this parade, which obviously is a very kind of explicit visual signal of their nuclear forces, but they've also been talking to us. I mean, uh, you know, North Korea releases these statements that I think don't get read very seriously because they pick right. some funny adjectives, but they're actually laying out uh, exactly what you said, Vip, and kind of, um, I mean, so this quote is from North Korea's deputy, um, deputy foreign minister uh, just a week ago. So here it goes. If we notice any sign of assault on our sovereignty, our army will launch merciless military strikes against the U.S. aggressors, wherever they may exist, from the remote U.S. lands to the American military bases on the Korean Peninsula, and such as those of Japan and elsewhere. So that's exactly what you said, right? So Iwakuni, Guam, Anderson Air Force Base, Busan, yes. um, all of those would be kind of taken out in a first strike, presumably, to limit the damage then that the U.S. and South Korea could do in a limited conventional fashion. And then, you know, they would look to deter ICBM. Um, uh, they would look to deter a, uh, a nuclear strike with ICBMs. Um, right. But, you know, what's funny is that they actually haven't put two and two together for us yet, right? Like they talk about ICBMs. They release these videos of, you know, San Francisco blowing up. They just did that a week ago. Um, but they haven't like come out and said, you know, release kind of the first part of the strategy and then kind of connect it to the second part, which is this well, you know, it, ICBM it, thing. Part of the issue, and the Pakistanis are beyond this phase now, so we, I won't, we won't get into South Asia's counterforce problem, but if you're, uh, if you're North Korea, you may worry about uh, arsenal survivability, and you may not be able to get a third strike. Right. So in this phase, you know, it is possible that they could, the sequence would be compressed. So they may start with uh, regional soft counterforce, uh, with the shorter and medium range systems, but if they think the U.S. is coming after their ICBMs in a counterforce mission, which the U.S. probably, you know, I don't know what the, how many, what we're talking about, but you could imagine the U.S. being pretty confident it could find the ICBM tells because the signatures are probably pretty, uh, pretty large. And if they think that we're coming after those, they'd have to go pretty quickly with those as well. Probably before you know we we started thinking about conventional counterforce. Uh, or nuclear counterforce. And uh, right now in this phase is probably the most unstable. In a lot of ways, the, uh, the analog in South Asia is the Pakistani arsenal growth has actually kind of relaxed the Pakistani use them or lose them fears. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, anytime you put that kind of use them or lose them pressure on a state like North Korea or Pakistan, you get high levels of first strike instabilities. And so we may be in those phases there. And if you're thinking about the U.S., you know, getting all of the short range systems may be difficult. And, you know, when we think of trying to disarm the North Koreans, there's a prior, there's a prioritization. You think you can get the sea-based systems, but you really want to get the ICBMs if you're U.S., right? So you, you can still inflict a significant damage limitation uh, if you can get whatever you can of the short and medium range systems. But if you can get most of the ICBMs and SLBMs that can target the U.S. homeland, uh, then, you know, that, that does achieve a significant damage limitation capability. Um, but knowing that, the North Koreans then have an incentive to go first with everything. Right. And I think what's also interesting is, you know, the trigger condition here um, 
is just mobilization. If the North Koreans feel that the U.S. and South Korea are mobilizing, which they feel every year. I mean, if you look at the statements they release when, you know, the exercise, yeah, the exercises are going on every year in the spring. I mean, they really see it as a rehearsal for a preemptive war. Well, and the other, you know, one one other consideration we have is that uh, given the pathologies of the North Korean leadership, it could very well be that a Donald Trump tweet could be viewed uh, as the, the the go signal. I mean, you just don't know how information is processed in a regime like that. Yeah. And uh, we have to be very careful about bluster or threats that are publicly made being misinterpreted as uh, a prelude to uh, conventional or you know whatever provocation against the North Koreans, or they perceive it that way. And you could very quickly find yourself in a nuclearized environment because if they think the conventional forces are coming, then right now I think they have a lot of incentive to go first, at least regionally, with nuclear forces because they wouldn't be able to stand and fight very long. Yeah. Uh, so um, I do worry about that, that these information processing issues are uh, complicate the relationship in ways that we don't have to worry about necessarily in like South Asia or Russia. Yeah, no, and we know that the North Koreans, you know, they do their own open source research just like we do about North Korea. They read our press, they read our tweets, uh, they even, you know, watch the North Korea watching community. So they know what That's we're right. talking about um, here. They'll probably even listen to this podcast, to be honest. So, um, <laughs> so hello, Pyongyang. Um, you know, Vipin, I wanted to ask you, you know, just kind of a, uh, a way to kind of wrap this discussion up is, you know, where do things go from here? I mean, you know, one of the things that people worry about, um, and this might be a place where you're well positioned to speak as an academic who can sometimes entertain, you know, academics, I feel like have an easier time entertaining some of the more out there possibilities, you know, like South Korean nuclear breakout, right? We had this whole episode this weekend yeah. with the, you know, Trump threatening South Korea to pay a billion dollars for that right before the election as public opinions already hot about the imminent yeah. deployment. The alliance is clearly not in a great place. South Korean conservatives and even some liberals are, you know, now hinting at the idea of of potential breakout in the future. I mean, how would how would that sort of change things on the Korean Peninsula? Because that would be a long drawn out process, presumably. So the North Koreans yeah, absolutely. Have to react, I mean, so. I, those are Japan and South Korea are unique. Japan is actually very unique in the NPT system because it has full control of fuel cycle and uh, sovereign control of reprocessed plutonium. And um, you know, Japan is 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 much if if they ever feared abandonment. You know, the lore is you know, and Jeff Lewis is. You know, un, uh, disaggregated and uh, you know ripped ripped apart the lore of six months to nuclear weapons. But basic point is that uh, Japan is much closer to uh, nuclear weapons capability if it wanted it. South Korea would have to do a little bit more work. The question is, what signatures would anyone have if they wanted to stop them? Um, but the reality is, though, I think that in 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 given a clear and present threat in North Korea, uh, future long term challenge with China. The reason why extended deterrence uh, is so important to U.S. nuclear strategy and alliance management, it's not a moral reason, it's not a disarmament reason, uh, it's not even a normative reason. There is a very strong strategic reason, which is Washington has always wanted to be able to be the sole point of control on nuclear use and escalation. If you have alliance partners with nuclear weapons, this was the this was the big concern with West Germany in the 1950s. It wasn't, the Soviets would have an aneurysm, yes, but we, we did not want regional allies that had an independent nuclear force to start a war that we would have to finish. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that the Trump administration maybe does or doesn't get. I think there are very good people in the, you know, who are being, who are populating the defense department, but, you know, President Trump in particular, I think really, you know, should, needs to understand that the, a billion dollars for that is one thing, but the price of keeping 
uh, South Korea non-nuclear is basically priceless because uh, you don't want another actor being able to start a conflict that you have to finish. And so there's a very good strategic reason to continue to reassure the allies and prevent nuclearization. If we detected South Korean nuclearization, it would be in our interest to stop them. Uh, and I think uh, reassure them to the extent possible. We went to great nuclear sharing lengths with West Germany to keep them non-nuclear. It's an open question as to whether we may have to do that in East Asia. Mm -hmm. And I, for one, might be more comfortable doing that if the alternative was independent nuclearization of Japan and South Korea. Now, the, I mean, there's still fringe voices on in both countries that are talking about. So it's not like this is yet mainstream. But you could very much imagine, you know, an errant missile test that hits Japanese soil that we fail to intercept. Uh, and, you know, you could see debate in Japan shifting more mainstream. And the same, you know, who knows how South Korean domestic politics will evolve. Uh, I've always thought South Korea is probably less likely to go nuclear, but you can imagine various provocations uh, and the fear of potential abandonment from the United States being a perfect storm where this debate becomes mainstream at least. Right. Uh, and I just think it's, it's certainly not in anyone's strategic interest to have additional nuclear actors in the region, if only because of the risk of somebody else starting a conflict that then we would have to finish. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, Vipin, I guess before we close out the podcast, uh, do you want to maybe tell our listeners what your uh, current research interests are, what you have kind of underway? Uh, yeah. So the my second book is, the uh, yeah, first book was Strategies of Deterrence, uh, and the second book is on Strategies of Proliferation. So I just had an article uh, that came out in the last issue of International Security on uh, thinking about pathways to acquisition. So, so much of the academic literature focuses on why states want nuclear weapons. Uh, but I'm working on kind of the how question. How do states, you know, once they decide to pursue nuclear weapons, go about doing so in the face of internal and external constraints? Uh, and uh, there will be a nice, uh, you know, complement to the first book on strategies of deterrence. And then I'll complete the trilogy, hopefully, before I die, Strategies of Compellence. That'll be the third book. Uh, and uh, it won't be like J.K. Rowling, but hopefully a trilogy that covers the main conceptual issues uh, and empirical issues in nuclear security. So... That's what I'm working on now, and uh, but I'm always going to be keenly interested in nuclear strategy, as we've seen with South Asia and now North Korea. Uh, so I always keep an eye out on these kinds of things, too. Great. And uh, I guess the next time we have you back on the show, hopefully, we'll uh, we'll talk South Asia for sure. Sounds great. Thanks, Ankit. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. No, it was my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Vipin. Thank you. Take care. All right. So that was Vipin Narang of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology talking about North Korea's nuclear weapons strategy. I know that was the second episode on North Korea in a row, but there really is so much to talk about. Uh, starting next week, I think we'll go back to other parts of Asia to bring the Asia Geopolitics podcast back to the variety that our listeners know and love. So if you like that episode and you haven't left us a rating, please do so on iTunes. And also, I should note that we are now on Google Play Music. So if you're an Android user or if you just want to listen in your web browser, you can do that. Uh, and please also try to rate us there. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more.